The Midday Report. I'm Mandy Wiener. Keep listening as we round up the key stories affecting your world with interviews with newsmakers, in-depth analysis and eyewitness news reporters on the ground. The Midday Report. So the state of disaster on electricity has been terminated. Let's go over to our reporter, Babalo Ndenze, who's been listening in on those quite dramatic developments of the day. Tell us what happened. Uh, yes, indeed, Jane. Uh, you know, the withdrawal of that extension to ESCOM for not disclosing those irregular expenditure, fruitless expenditure. Um, and, um, you know, MPs welcoming the minister's decision to withdraw that exemption say that sanity has prevailed and they, they welcome the, ex- the withdrawal, but they're not entirely satisfied and they thought, you know, they want the Gazette basically withdrawn permanently and not just for now, as the minister indicated during the briefing. But Minister Inakotawana says the intention is not to hide anything from South Africans or from anyone. Um, it just follows extensive engagement with the Auditor General and it's really to allow ESCOM to um, better look in financial statements, basically, <clears throat> basically to plus just plus a plus overview of their financials and he says to maintain fiscal sustainability. But he respects the public outcry and the, the country's you know, lack of an appetite for corruption. But let's just take a listen to what the minister said. We look at it from a fiscal sustainability eye. We then said we should grant ESCOM the exemption from reporting these uh, what are called material losses due to criminal conduct, irregular expenditure, fruitless and wasteless expenditure from disclosing those in the annual financial statement, but those should be disclosed in the broader annual report. In other words, we're not hide, hiding them. All right. I'm going to talk about the, the state of disaster in a, a couple of minutes, but just tell us about the, the, the legal action. Uh, Outer Afri Forum opposition parties, and I, I think, you know, the majority of the company, uh, country were against this. I mean, where does this leave the process now? Right, we've lost Babalo. So just to remind you that the state of disaster has been terminated with immediate effect. So two rather dramatic U-turns this morning. That and the U-turn on the Eskom exemption when it comes to irregular expenses. I mean, Enoch Gorongwana was saying that the reason that they had to do that was to to, uh, be able to put forward clean books for investment, which sounds like cooking the books to me. So, Babalo, uh, I was asking you about the legal action taken against this stance, how that played out and what this means for us now. What happens next? Well, well, um, Jane, in, in this particular, you know, um, withdrawal, um, you know, not the withdrawal of the state of disaster, but this particular withdrawal, um, you know, it, it, it means that now ESCOM will have to disclose any irregular expenditure going forward until, you know, any future developments on the matter, you know, but what members did say is that they are cons- they would consider legal action. You know, particularly the, the EFF MP said they would consider legal action should you know Treasury or ESCOM decide in the near future to again you know f- you know choose not to disclose um, any regular expenditure you know because of the history of corruption at ESCOM and you know and everything that's happened at other SOEs. But the minister did you know remind members that Transnet has gone through a similar process of exemption. Um, but these matters will be extensively, you know, consulted and engaged with, you know, the relevant relevant structures like the Auditor General as well as Parliament as well, and before any future decision on, you know, and 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 uh, you know, an exemption 
of disclosing um, irregularities at these SOEs. I mean, we could suggest that they would take this route in the first place, right, before coming up with these type of exemptions. The state of the disaster, the fact that it's been uh, terminated, how did that come about and what happens to the Minister of Electricity? Well, the Minister of Electricity or the state of disaster or the, the office of the state attorney, you know, is the one that basically, you know, released this or gave this information. And But the government hasn't really confirmed anything, especially the Minister of Electricity, as far as the state of disaster is concerned. Parliament as well hasn't had a chance to, you know, to, to discuss the matter. It has not been put on the agenda yet. The MPs are currently on a recess. Um, but, you know, the state of disaster, there have been parties that have called for it not to go ahead. Like, for example, the the Democratic Alliance has been vehemently opposed to a state of disaster when initially they were in support of one, you know, but, you know, change, had a change of heart as, as things developed. So we still have to hear a bit more on this, with, on this withdrawal of the uh, state of disaster on ESCOM, you know, when, when, when the president also, or also the minister, you know, makes any announcements as well as, as parliament, you know, should also, you know, discuss the matter sooner or later, Jane. All right, Babalo, let's leave it there. Babalo, and Denza with that update on the state of disaster. So we know that government was embarrassed by the Tabo Beska escape. I mean, what's the emotion on this one? Do you think humbled, exasperated? I don't know. Uh, Africa earlier on spoke to Khaleb Kachalia from the Democratic Alliance. He's a spokesperson on public enterprises about this decision by the finance minister to withdraw the gazette that granted Eskom exemption from disclosing irregular, wasteful and fruitless expenditure. From his financial statements, let's listen to what he said. Well, the, the minister made a very brief statement. He outlined what they had proposed to do, and then he said that they have withdrawn it uh, pending consultation, uh, which was uh, uh, the withdrawal the, the was, was well received by everybody on the committee, on the various committees, and everybody made uh, input as to, frankly, and I don't want to mince words here, how stupid it was to do it in the first place, and now by withdrawing it, it actually shows how ridiculous it is uh, and that it needs to, and, and that this uh, cannot be, be countenanced. Moreover, uh, uh, as the minister said, uh, he was previously availed of the same, of the same exemption, and it now uh, opens the question as to whether this will be withdrawn from Transnet as well, because you cannot, you cannot, in the in the vain attempt to raise capital on the markets, because the fiscus, the uh, the the, the cupboard is bare. You cannot go and hide things or relegate things to non-audited statements. Uh, firstly, it reflects uh, uh, a sort of malfeasance of sorts, and then secondly, it, it, it assumes that uh, international markets uh, will not do proper due diligence. I mean, really, I'm glad he's withdrawn it, and he now has to relegate it. All right, we've been getting some response to this, as you can imagine. Let's listen to uh, what's been said. Uh, Jane, I said big up to the DA for preventing ANC criminals from further looting ESCOM, from further enriching themselves. Big up to DA Outer. I never thought I would find myself saying this, but the ANC criminals thought they would outsmart everyone and get away around thieving. 
So thanks to the DA. Yeah, it certainly is a win for South Africans, isn't it? I mean, this kind of uh, cooking the books, it sounds like, sort of hiding figures. It's just not going to wash anymore, is it? We're waiting on Chris Yelland. He's an energy analyst. And I want to ask him, I mean, you just wonder who advises people at the top. I mean, how can they com- come up with this sort of statement in order just to reverse it? At, at what cost to us and our reputation? And Enoch Gordon-Guana said that the intention was to allow Eskom to have better financial statements as it tries to raise capital, therefore hiding irregularities. Is that even legal? The Midday Report. Do you remember that very traumatic story about the rape cases in Krugersdorp where a group of illegal miners allegedly robbed a group of young women that were busy working on a a music video. I mean, just a a really sordid affair. Some people were arrested and then they were, and then they were let go. Tabisa Hova has been listening in on, um, findings today. Tabisa, have we learned any more about what happened? Good afternoon, Jane. So I have to clarify that um, today's briefing was by the information regulator and not the SA police service. So for those who don't know what the information regulator is, it is an independent Section 89 body. So it it investigates and monitors um, cases of um, that violate the Personal uh, Protection of Information Act. So any cases where you know, uh, someone's uh, personal details are compromised. That's where the information regulator comes in. So it's, to put it properly, it's sort of like the public protector of, uh, of uh, information, uh, personal information. So what happened with that Kruger stop uh, matter, uh, Jane, is that there was a suspicion that SA police members distributed the numbers uh, and uh, other personal details like identity numbers and addresses of some of the sexual assault victims. These were obviously the ladies who were allegedly robbed and gang raped by uh, illegal minors. So what today the information regulator found this, through the investigation is that there was actually true and the SA police um, has been sanctioned. Um, they have to apologize within 31 days and they also have to um, put through their members um, through training of the section uh, of Personal Information and Protection Act. Um, this is Advocate, um, Advocate Pansy Kagulana, who is Kagulani, who is the chairperson of the Information Regulator, sort of um, explaining what are the consequences that our SAPS um, is going to suffer going forward. The regulator has, against the above backdrop, amongst others, ordered that the responsible party must notify uh, the data subject of the security compromise which relates to their personal information, and they must take this action within 31 days of receipt of of the enforcement notice. The SAPS must also publish an apology to data subject prominently in all major national weekly newspapers and social media platforms such as Facebook and Twitter for processing their personal information unlawfully. The SAPS must also investigate the conduct of the SAP members 
who were responsible for the unlawful processing of personal information of the data subject. And they must also include training on POPIA in all the training programs that they conduct for their members. It wasn't just the Krugersdorp gang rape um, and what happened to them and the, the information that was leaked. I mean, there are many other high-profile cases. Uh, there's also one about royalties and the status of music artists and what's happened to them. What more do you know about that? Yes, Jane, um, there is um, a, a case. Actually, um, uh, we are just about to speak with the, per, uh, the person um, who was um, the victim of that. But what happened is, is that uh, a music company, they obviously do not name it here, um, but a music company was withholding some payments uh, to a Mr. Clive um, Hardwick. Um, and obviously, through, so Mr. Clive Hardwick applied through the um, the information regulator to get some of the information um, sort of um, they were sort of um, withholding this information and so the information regulator um, sort of um, forced um, this uh, <laughs> this music company or music label to release this information uh, because obviously everyone has access to public information and through that uh, Mr. Hardwick is now able to get some of the royalties that are due to him Okay, and we're going to be having a little bit more on that story a little later on in the Eyewitness News Wrap, the day that was, which uh, we are releasing every night at 7.30. So thanks very much for that, uh, Tibisa Goba. You wonder what needs to be done now in order to make sure that our information is safe. I mean, you'd think that that was the whole point of these acts. The Midday Report. So, Tabo Besta is still missing. He's probably sunning his buns in... Seychelles or somewhere exotic. G4S was missing in action yesterday. They just didn't bother to pitch up to face a parliamentary hearing. And you you just wonder if this has been taken seriously enough. Let's bring in Mike Bolhays. He's a special investigator. Mike, a very good afternoon to you. Any chance of finding this man? Uh, thanks, Jane. I don't think he's in the Seychelles. I think they are still here. But the possibility now, uh, because of the exposure of the media, and I thank the media, I believe the police is not too happy about it, but uh, the police should have done their work uh, since last May, which Mm. wasn't done at all. So I praise the media, all of you guys, for uh, being on this, keeping it hot and exposing it constantly. And this puts them in a predicament, uh, Tabo and his girlfriend, Nandipa, because I think the pressure is on and they're running wild all over the place. It's going to be difficult for them to move because all the borders uh, is checking uh, out for them. But uh, we must once again remember the corruption we have in this country. You can, If you have the connections and the money, you can pay your way out. So you enter the border... You send somebody in, they negotiate an amount, and then voila, you go through and you're gone. So okay, but Mike, the neighboring- there, therein lies the problem. This man has got connections. He's got a lot That's of money. That's the thing. That's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. I'm saying just the if in the sense that it is factual. Well, let me sort of make that statement. Uh, take note that Tabo and um, his girlfriend and 
those who are involved with him are extremely connected and extremely rich. They have finances, but it is running out in a way as well because they have knocked and scammed quite a lot of people. And um, now that the media, once again, thanks to them, has exposed this so much, there will be a lot of people that will be withdrawing from them uh, out of fear that so many security companies like ourselves, which are specialist investigators, the police has now upgraded. Uh, I know of several policemen that are involved that we trust. We're working closely with them. And uh, we are on their tails, it's, it's my opinion, but they're always a step ahead, which is my concern that they might still have connections in, from government level to municipal level to security levels or even in the police uh, levels where they can get information or are warned. But I think there are a lot of people withdrawing from them. Also remember, there's a lot of people they've knocked and scammed that, uh, scammed that is also after them. So about everybody is now looking for them. There's been a reward. And um, I'm also sure that those who have been fully involved with them before will step a bit aside because the authorities might identify them now that they've suddenly taken this to a next step where they do forensic investigations. And that's why we're there we're at the property to see if they can find any old cell phone cards. Okay, sorry, let me, ju- let me just jump in there. This property, mm-hmm. again, you know, and, and I agree with you, I think the media was incredible uh, when it comes yes. to highlighting what happened. These pictures of the property that he stayed in with his girlfriend were released some time back. How come yes. police are only going there now? I mean, surely the information that they seek won't be there. It's contaminated. Well, you tell me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's just it. You know it. You just want me to answer it. it I do. Is, <laughs> it is horrific. And uh, isn't that with most of our cases? Yeah. Isn't that with most of our cases in South Africa? The day the body was charred and burned in the jail is the day where the two scenarios should have been investigated. Because so many jumped up and down and said that Taibo is alive, it's not him. It wasn't ever investigated. Secondly, why did it take so much time? How much time went by? Months, it's nearly a year for this case to become uh, such an issue that it's now, it's more than egg on the face of South Africa and its authorities. So yes, the question uh, is that they left there just after the 20th mm. with an extreme group of bodyguards. We were there. We investigated the place, and my investigators were surprised because we asked uh, the uh, owner of the property, uh, were the police here? Was there anybody here? He says, they said no. The only guys that were there at the stage was the DCS, and they just asked him if, the, if they are still there, and, and he said no. They have left, and they turned around. They didn't even do an investigation. No dustbins were checked. No graves or anything were checked, or maybe the gardener or somebody else could have been buried. You know, I'm, I'm making an extreme statement here, but there could have been stuff that was left behind that could have been uh, of enormous value. And only, uh, well, let me put it to you this way. We are constantly communicating with all, and we're giving as much as we can, but uh, we are definitely many steps uh, behind. I mean, we are one of the crime hotspots on the planet. This doesn't give you much yes. hope for for putting a stop to that, does it? I mean, wouldn't you be interested to hear the conversations between Nandipa and Tabo? I mean, they've obviously got a, a thing going, right? And uh, maybe this is all a rush. I don't know. But wouldn't you love to get into her mind? Yes, I would. And 
I think they is a bit of a Bonnie and Clyde, yeah. I don't think they uh, will. They might be in different locations, which I think it would be, but I think they would uh, be constantly in a form of communication and still planning ahead. What they have planned thoroughly is the escape whilst he was in prison and the escape afterwards, because it's one thing to get out of jail, but then where do you go? Left, right, where? So uh, this was carefully uh, uh, planned. This is an intelligent criminal. This is not a stupid man. This was thoroughly planned with real connections in the authorities, uh, the securities, and uh, other connections, and then financially very strong. So they had their whole time outside also planned, and they were financially flush, and they can do and go wherever they wanted to. But now they're in a position where they, they've changed their looks completely, totally. And they have to be extremely careful because every Tom, Dick and Harry is looking for them. Okay, Mike, let's leave it there and pray and hope that they do get arrested and makes you wonder what sort of cell he's going to have to be put in to make sure he doesn't escape. Again, Mike Bohes, analyst, special investigator. Thank you. The Midday Report. How does all these uh, decisions happen in the presence of DGs, DDGs, chief directors, all the professionals in government. Is this not a sign of incapable state? It is good news that uh, they've decided to revoke that government gazette regarding ESCOM not being allowed to uh, have their books audited. But what no one said as yet is the fact that uh, the new CEO of ESCOM, the, the chap who's taken Dorator's place, yeah, he was the CFO there, and this definitely would have come off his desk. So maybe we need to be uh, watching out what decisions are coming out of uh, the ESCOM uh, management team. The Midday Report. Well, I hope that we'll find out what's really going down there as far as electricity is concerned and those crazy decisions and U-turns. Let's bring in our reporter now, Alpha Ramoshwana, who is talking about the 200 new emergency response vehicles that we are seeing today that have been unveiled. Tell us about them and how come we've got them now, Alpha? Good afternoon, uh, Jane. Well, you, you would know that the Gauteng Department of Health has been, you know, uh, seeing some challenges in the past few years. And also this includes the shortage of ambulances and emergency vehicles within the public health sector. So the Premier and Panyazin uh, Health MEC Nomantungomoranohuku will be today unveiling 200 new emergency vehicles that will be distributed across all the uh, municipalities and 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 uh, districts in in the Houteng province. And you would remember that during his State of the Nation address, he did mention that one of his uh, uh, goals is to, of course, address the issues that are facing the health sector and the shortage uh, of ambulances and the lack of capacity, you know, to adequately provide health services to the people of the province. So this, this, these, these um, ambulances were purchased with the budget for the 2022-2023 financial year. So he did also uh, hint that more will be coming in a few months' time. So there's still uh, a lot that the Premier and the Health MEC are going to be unveiling in the coming months and today with regards to addressing the issues in the health sector. I mean, you hear of the staggering shortage, the condition of the vehicles, the fact that there's no money for petrol. I mean, you just wonder if this is actually going to be enough, if it's going to make a difference. Yeah, that, that, that is what we'll have to see. And, of course, 
we're, we're, we're going to see how impactful these new vehicles will be. They are brand new. That is what we are saying here. And of course, we do know that, uh, Jane, most of the ambulances that are already working in the streets are really, really in a bad condition. I can tell you that as I was driving to Pretoria here in Mamilodi, where the unveiling is, I did see one ambulance on the highway, which seemed to be, you know, stuck. So these vehicles that are here will definitely be uh, impactful and will help the health sector housing. Uh, provide services for the people. All right, and good timing too, just ahead of the Easter holidays. Thank you for that, Alpha Ramashwana. The Midday Report. Okay, I was going to say that this is a story that will blow your mind, but I suspect it probably won't. We'll just go, oh, somebody else. I mean, it's uh, Bernadette Wicks is here. Uh, I mean, it's staggering, isn't it? We're talking about the arrest of Advocate Hassan Ibrahim Kaji. I mean, the fact that somebody can actually think they can get away with this, I'm not going to spoil any of the juicy details. Over to you. Well, um, absolutely. So we heard from the SIU this week that um, Advocate Kaju had been arrested on the first of this month and that he appeared in court um, earlier this week on Monday. Um, and they've kind of explained um, that the allegations refer that the allegations center around charges of fraud against the state attorney's office, which Advocate um, Kaji was briefed to represent in a number of cases over the years. But going back, there um, are actually court documents that kind of expose the extent of the alleged graft. Now, we don't know exactly what these specific charges that he's now facing relate to yet. Mm. Um, but we do know that in the past, he allegedly billed the state attorney's office for 517 consecutive days works, no week, no consecutive days work, no weekends, no public holidays, no breaks in between. Between, um, and that was at a rate of around 66,000 rand a day, totaling about 34 million rand over the course of around 17 months. Um, and over and above that, over and above the fact that that means he would have had to have worked nonstop for this, these 517 days. I mean, you kind of think, sorry, that if he worked that many days, he deserves that money. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's just, it's just quite hard to imagine that someone did work that many days. Um, the other part that's interesting is that his, his hourly rate was two and a half thousand rand an hour. Um, at that rate, he would have had to have worked around 26 hours a day to bill for that much. So yeah, some very, some very sort of, concerning allegations there it really just speaks to kind of the brazen nature of graft and corruption and fraud um, in the public mm. sector and we hear it time and time again isn't it i mean that just the fact that he thought he could get away with this he obviously worked with somebody um absolutely so in in um, previous judgments and in the statement what they talk about is a um, potentially collusive relationship with the former head of the office of the state attorney that's mr gustav lakabe um, and I mean, we know that he was, he was ultimately paid for, for this work. And I say that in air quotes. Um, <laughs> but we know that he was ultimately paid. And for that to have gone through, I mean, of course, there had to be someone on the inside to approve that without question. Yeah. Okay. So what happens now? Well, he is facing charges now. Um, he was behind bars for the weekend and he appeared in court on Monday when he was released on bail of 20,000 Rand and he's due back on the 25th of next month. So we'll be keeping a close eye on those proceedings. And you wonder what sort of impact this has on the office there and their workings. Absolutely. So we must also remember that his arrest comes off the back of a broader investigation mm. that the SIU was mandated to undertake um, back in 2018. And that's looking at various allegations of wrongdoing and of graft and of um, corruption involving the state attorney's office specifically claims um, against the Department of Health and or the Provincial Departments of Health and the National Department of Health, but also claims against the police. 
Um, and, uh, you know, we're not exactly 100% sure where that broader investigation is at the moment, but I do know that there was a, um, there was an update provided to the portfolio committee a couple of years ago. And by then they had already uncovered millions and millions and millions and millions of rounds worth of suspicious payments and suspicious payouts. So, so really, yes, it's much bigger than even this one, this one individual advocate. Thank you very much for that, Bernadette Wicks. The Midday Report. Uh, Jane, afternoon. It's, it's been a while since uh, this Tabo Peste escaped from, from prison. And then uh, the manhunt was only done a few days ago, two days, three days ago. And do they really think that this guy is still within our borders? I doubt. I really doubt. This guy has, has crossed over. He's somewhere. Maybe within within the African continent, but I doubt he's here. And just like Bushiri, who disappeared in thin air, and, and no one noticed. So this guy, I doubt he's here. They must just forget. Uh, it's 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 an egg on their face. This government. Yeah. Good afternoon. It just proves this whole ANC government is involved in theft and corruption. Here, the Minister of Finance trying to exempt ESCOM from irregular disclosure. No. This is aiding and abetting thieves and criminals. 100%. Definite proof that the whole government is involved in theft and corruption. Jeffrey. The Midday Report. All right, so another story that seems to have no ending is that of the suspended public protector. Uh, rather dramatic moments that we see and hear from every single day in court, yesterday being another one. So the one, the Section 194 committee meets to deliberate on how to proceed following the decision by the Office of the Public Protector to withdraw Advocate McWibani's legal funding. So in March 2020, the High Court handed down judgment in the case brought by the President for a judicial review of McWibani's report into the funding of his 2017 campaign. Advocate Miossi is currently presenting the question of the remedial actions to this particular case. Let's listen in on that. So the court continued, we earlier concluded that the public, public protector acted not only irrationally, but also recklessly in reaching her conclusion that there was evidence supporting a prima facie case of money laundering. We noted that this conclusion had potentially extremely serious consequences for the president. This is not a consequence peculiar to him because because of the position that he holds. Anyone against whom such a finding is made would potentially find themselves under investigation for an extremely serious offence. However, the fact that it was the president is an added concern. When the head of state is implicated in money laundering, it immediately presents a threat to the well-being of the public at large. If the implication is well-founded, then this is a consequence with which the general public must come to terms. However, if it is reached irrationally and recklessly, it is another matter entirely. The court continued and said, what makes the public protector's conduct in this regard worse is that despite being requested to give the president an opportunity to respond to the remedial action she had in mind, she refused to do so. The president wasn't given sight of a remedial action directing the NDPP to investigate money laundering 
It's unclear why the public protector failed to comply with one of her most fundamental principles of natural justice by declining the president's request to be permitted to make representations on the remedial action. It would not have unduly slowed down her investigation, which seems to have been conducted at relative speed. The public protector ought to have understood the importance of not making findings that will have such that will have such serious implications without affording a proper hearing to the persons affected. At the very least, she failed to show appreciation for an elementary principle of due legal process. Let's bring in Mumpelo Zikalala, legal analyst. A very good morning to you. Where does this leave the entire process? What are we looking at? In fact, it leaves it in limbo. Oh, good afternoon to you, and your listeners. It leaves it in limbo because you can't really proceed without one of the parties being legally represented. But the technical flow that may run the whole proceeding was being irrational and when you take it from the view, you could declare as if this particular fitting that never taken place. Now, I've heard the argument by the chairperson saying that more than merely advising us, but they merely advising the presentation of evidence in which we have expected the voice of Africa to involve the then to, to crop up here and there in instances where we feel that his clients' rights are being uh, tarnished or they are now uh, uh, sort of, 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 of tarnishing the name. Now, if you don't have that ability and the process is not open, it means that the mind of the presiding officers uh, or the decision makers in the case have been presented the one case after something which is not uh, shouldn't be done and shouldn't proceed. What actually have happened is that it is one part is not legally represented. Unfortunately, the second one is beyond your control. You have to adjourn the proceedings up until every part that is going to present to you is legally represented and every, every part is present to deal with the matter. Mumpelelo, I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there. It's sounding very muffled and, and I'm struggling a little bit. Unless you try speaking a little bit uh, closer to your speaker, can we can we continue? Because I think this is an important conversation. So so let's try again. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about her funding. What, what right does she have to access funds? Where does that issue now leave this process? That particular issue is a better now. Yes, that's sounding better. Thank you. It's important to note that what you should remember is that it is not the public protector's personal issues which are at stake. So she is being taken to these proceedings in the capacity of the public protector as South Africa and not as advocate in Kobane, the, 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 the human being. So whenever the complete proceedings which are going will require any financial assistance, supposed to be office to support the thing, what maybe you could have done to try and curtail the expenses from belonging to something that can't be afforded which is to say, this is the extended amount which we are going to offer to you. You must take note that when you are negotiating with your private legal representatives, you do so within this budget in mind, and you must know that this is what's going to happen. And it's the same budget that we've allocated also to the parliamentary committee so that we're able to level the playing field. So we're going to the, to the battlefield with all um, uh, our, 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 our power and equal settings so that when you present yourself, there's no one going to come at the end of the day and say, I had an unfair advantage because my team was given a lot of resources. So I couldn't really defend my legal interests to the full extent. Okay, Mumpolelelo Zikalala, thank you very much for that. I really appreciate your time. The sound just wasn't great. The Midday Report. We're talking now about 
Donald Trump. He finally had his day in court. I mean, he sounds a bit like our president who's willing to have his day in court, but just not prepared to really pitch up in court. Donald Trump did hand himself over. And we want to find out more about the criminal charges that he's facing because it was sealed until he appeared yesterday. Let's bring in Aisha Curry, political analyst. A very good afternoon to you. What more do we know about those charges against him? Good afternoon, Jane. Now that the indictment has been unsealed, we know that there are 34 counts, felony counts against him of falsifying business records or payment records. Now, normally under New York law, this would be a misdemeanor, but it escalates to a felony, a a higher charge, a more serious charge, if it is done in order to cover up another more serious Offense And the other more serious offense in this case is the violation of both state and federal campaign finance laws. So the payments that were made by Mr. Trump or the Trump organization, depending on which payments we're talking about, to his then lawyer, Mr. Cohen, were for reimbursing Mr. Cohen, who had paid hush money to a porn star who had alleged that Mr. Trump had an affair with her. Now, that hush money was paid over in order to protect Mr. Trump's reputation during the election campaign period. So it was essentially election financing is what the the prosecution will argue. Mm. And this moment is important, obviously, for, for a multitude of reasons, but there are bigger charges that have been bubbling away against him. They're just uh, working on how to land those. It's important yes. now that this is a strong enough case that everyone knows it's not a political case, which his supporters, and including Trump, say it is. Yes, his, his supporters continue to make political capital mm. out of these allegations that this is a political case. However, if you look at today's opinion editorial in the New York Times, um, the writer, one of the writers of which is a former New York district attorney, it makes it very clear that the New York DA's office is not unused to prosecuting such charges and that he is being treated as any other citizen of the state would be. Mm. So it is to say it is, you know, an overtly political case is misleading, to be sure. Of course, in, in the terms of the fact that it is a former president and the first time that a former president has been indicted on such charges does make it political. But it is not overtly political in itself in that similar cases have been brought and continue to be brought by the New York District Attorney's Office against a multitude of citizens in the state. What happens now? Well, the judge in the case has uh, basically postponed the, 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 the court case to December this year, which will make it very close to next year's primaries. And Mr. Trump has uh, indicated that he is not going to back down from recontesting the Republican nomination in a bid to become president once more. So it's going to be an interesting time politically and judicially in New York State and indeed in the U.S. I should imagine the Democrats are a little nervous and also those within the country. I mean, the schisms are growing, aren't they? Absolutely. 
absolutely. It's, it's, it's been a very polarizing issue between Republicans and Democrats, and indeed within the Republican Party, between Trump supporters and those who are made a bit uneasy by his stance, particularly his, uh, you know, his fairly wild rhetoric in, in, on social media. Um, what would be really interesting is if he were convicted on these charges, let alone on the other the cases pending against him. But if he were convicted on these charges um, and, and becomes a convicted felon, how does he can still contest the presidency, which is an irony in itself, because in many states in the U.S., convicted felons are prevented from voting. So he might still be able to contest the presidency, but he would be uh, prevented from voting for himself. And if he won, how does he then, if he is actually incarcerated, how does he then control the presidency from inside prison? Oh, it's going to be a dramatic time. Aisha Curry, thank you for your time. The Midday Report. That's a wrap of the day's news. Don't forget you can catch the full Midday Report live on 702 and Cape Talk via our streams on YouTube and our website 702.co.za and capetalk.co.za. Keep checking in for updates from my colleagues at Eyewitness News. Till the next time, I'm Mandy Wiener. The Midday Report.